0: Happy New Year! My name is Tommy Allen. I'm the lead pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church, and I am glad you are here. Um, I'm glad that it's 2021. I hope this year turns out better than last year. And if you're watching the service virtually, know that at least as it premieres, um, we are also having in-person worship uh, beginning today. So I'm going to be preaching in a minute. And because we're Presbyterian, I'll have roughly the same amount of interaction with you that I will have with our congregation. LOL. That said, I thought I would begin today with the confession of sin, the same confession of sin, in fact, that we're using in public worship right now. So if you would like to follow along, you can. It's in the description section. And so let us pray together. My Lord Jesus Christ, although you are both God and King of heaven and earth, we need not be afraid of you. You are our companion and our Lord, flesh and blood like we are. That we are sinners tempts us to give up, yet if we had not been sinners, you would not have suffered for us, so we are comforted. Together we stand in your presence again in order that you may comfort our timid and fearful consciences and that we may trust anew in you. Knowing that you have also taken away our sin, of this your word assures us, praise you in eternity. Amen. Now, if we were meeting in person, or if you were meeting with us in person, I'd give you a moment to confess your sins silently. And then afterward, I would give you an assurance of pardon. And I would say to you that if you've confessed your sins unto Jesus, know that you're forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. Well, this week, we pick up in the Jesus Storybook Bible series. um, I think it's the 25th. And the title of today's sermon is Let's Go. And it's interesting because if you remember last week Samuel preached on John the Baptist and at the end of the John the Baptist story we had the baptism of Jesus that's where we pick up today so I'm going to start you with a, a question and the question is this are you familiar with Paradise Lost by John Milton the epic poem now when when you call we call something epic we tend to say wow that was epic or that was big Epic is almost an understatement for the poem Paradise Lost. Um, it was published in 1667. It was 10 books. It was about 11,000 lines long. And if you want some idea of how long of a poem Paradise Lost is, the audio version, if you were going to download the audiobook, is 11 hours long. So it is a long epic poem. And most people haven't read it, or if you read it like I have read it, you had to read it for college or something. And basically, the story, it's a biblical story on one hand. On the other hand, um, the title is a little bit misleading. I mean, it's called Paradise Lost because ultimately Adam and Eve lose paradise. But really, what Paradise Lost is about is about this tremendous clash between Satan and the son of God, Adam, who is our representative, and all of the consequences from that. So what are the consequences of this clash between Satan and the son of God, Adam, and the fact that he failed, right? Paradise lost. Now, it's interesting because apparently Milton had no, no intention of writing Paradise Regained until a friend challenged him. He had a friend, John Milton, most people don't know either, was blind, not only did he write this eleven thousand line poem, but he wrote it by just dictating it to his one of his daughters. But he was blind. And he needed a friend named Thomas Elwell, who would come and read to him. He also tutored Elwell, so they had a good symbiotic relationship. And Elwell, a Quaker, read Paradise Lost, and he thought it was good. I mean, he, he, was, he was amazed by it. On one hand, on the other hand, and I quote, he said to him, "You've said much here about Paradise Lost." but what have you to say about paradise found? In other words, you only gave bad news here, or at least you gave the hint of good news, right? Because in Paradise Lost, we see this scene in heaven where Jesus volunteers to restore humanity and Adam and Eve are told about this future redeemer who would come, but then it's the end. There's no real closure there. And so as a result of being challenged by his friend to to say, what do you have to say about paradise found? Milton wrote Paradise Regained, and it only is about an hour and 45 minutes if you listen to the audio version of it, but Paradise Regained is very similar to Paradise Lost in that it is about this epic clash between Satan and the Son of God, Adam, but it's not the first Adam, it's the Son of God, the last Adam, Jesus. In in, in other words, the, the context of the first battle between Satan and the Son of God was in paradise, and the context for the second battle is the wilderness, the barren wilderness, the desert, the harsh wilderness. In other words, where Milton uh, places, the context for paradise regained is actually the scene of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. That's what we're going to look at today, that particular passage, because that, in fact, is where paradise for us is regained or at least it starts to be regained or at least the the scene is set for us to 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 be restored. And so basically if you want to understand also the 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 story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness with Satan and how it applies to us some context is is helpful of course. So in all of the synoptic Gospels, but when I say synoptic Gospels, I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they call them synoptic Gospels because they're all very interrelated and they use each other. But in all of those Gospels, basically what you see is John the Baptist proclaiming that the Christ is going to come, Jesus shows up, John baptizes him, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus, and the Father proclaims his benediction upon the Son in whom he is well pleased in all three versions, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let me read to you Luke's version. After Jesus was baptized, it says in verse 21 of chapter three, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now between it's interesting that they all of those the accounts Jesus is baptized and then he goes straight to the wilderness for this temptation now what's interesting is in Luke's gospel he inserts between Jesus baptism and his wilderness temptation a genealogy and honestly that seems a little weird until you think about it or until I point out to you some things in other words, Matthew points his, puts his genealogy right at the beginning of the book. Mark doesn't even have a genealogy. And it seems like if you're going to establish someone's credentials, you put them in the most important place. I think that's actually what Luke is doing here. Notice what Luke says of the genealogy of Jesus. I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it starts in verse 23 of chapter 3. And he says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph Joseph. Son of Heli, son of Mathat, and then it goes down for, for 15 verses. And by the time you get to verse 37, you see it says son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalaleel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Why is that important? Why put a genealogy right here? Jesus has identified with his people in baptism. God has proclaimed to Jesus and you, I am well-pleased. And then Luke gives us this genealogy where he takes it all the way back to God, right? Did you notice the last thing he said? It says, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. In other words, the very first son of God, if you will, besides the eternal son, son, the first person in the Bible that was called the son of God was Adam. Adam as the son of God, was our representative. And so the fact that Luke puts his genealogy here is is significant for a couple of reasons. For one, it universalizes Jesus. Right? Matthew's genealogy is very Jewish. This genealogy goes all the way back to God. And so Jesus, it universalizes him. He's not just the Jewish Messiah. He is the, the Messiah for the whole world. But not only that, but it connects him and compares him with Adam. That just as As Adam was the son of God, Jesus was the son of God. Just as Adam was our representative, Jesus would be our representative. And whatever happens with Adam would happen with us until another Adam comes who succeeds, Jesus, who is also the son of God. In other words, Jesus has come to do what Adam failed to do that when God put Adam in the garden, he put him there as our representative and whatever happened with Adam ultimately would happen to us. Whatever guilt came upon Adam would happen to us. Whatever righteousness or goodness or benediction came upon Adam would come to us. He failed. Not only did Adam fail to do what he should have done, but also Israel failed to do what they were supposed to do right? Um, All the quotes when Jesus begins to to go back and forth with Satan here, all the quotes come from Deuteronomy chapter 6 through chapter 8. And Israel also was called God's son, right? In in Exodus chapter 4, God tells Pharaoh, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. And he says, let my son go that he may worship me. So, so Adam failed to do what he was supposed to do. Israel failed in their covenant keeping with God. And at the end of the day, Jesus came to do what we failed to do. Right? All of us are sinners, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't have to quote Bible verses to you to convince you that you are a sinner. At least I hope I don't. If you're honest, you know that. And Jesus came to do what we failed to do and continue to fail to do. And to the extent that he is successful, we will be successful in him. And that all begins right here in this passage as Jesus, as soon as he is baptized, is led by the spirit into the wilderness. And so one final thing before we jump in here, most of the time when you hear this text preached about Jesus and Satan in the wilderness and the temptations, it's often preached as a sort of how-to sermon, right? Here's how to avoid sin, or here's how to engage with the devil. If you feel tempted with this or that, you know, you use the Word of God, or you do this, you do that. That's not what's happening here. That At the end of the day, Jesus doesn't come and battle and overcome temptation as our example. He comes and overcomes temptation as our substitute. In in other words, what is happening in the wilderness here is not just sort of a show for us to see how Jesus overcame temptation. It's actually life and death. There is a battle going on here and the battle actually is for you and for me. If Jesus wins, there is hope for us and if he loses, there is no hope for us. Depending on how he fares, we will fare as well. So All Our whole lives are riding on what happens here in the desert. And so why don't we do this? He faced three temptations. Before we jump into those, let me pray and uh, we will jump in. Father, I pray that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, that you would teach us uh, not how to avoid temptation, but you would teach us about the one who has avoided temptation for us as our substitute, Jesus himself. In his name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So basically, as Jesus enters in the wilderness, there are three temptations or three tests that he has to, that he encounters from Satan, and they all have to do a trusting God. So the three things are this one, he's going to face a test of trusting God's provision, a test of trusting God's authority, and a test of trusting God's protection. So three things, whether he can trust God's provision, whether he can trust God's authority, and whether he can trust God's protection. So let me read to you the first four verses here. It says in verse chapter four, verse one, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So first thing you notice, verse one, that Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from Jordan was led by the spirit into the wilderness. In other words, Jesus wasn't just walking along and happened to be in the wilderness and be like, wow. And then Satan popped up from behind a rock the Holy Spirit took Jesus into the wilderness in order to test him, in order to do these temptations or have Satan do these temptations so that Jesus could pass or fail ultimately. And the point of verse 1 I just wanted to make clear is that Jesus going to face off against Satan was purposeful. It wasn't a second thought. He actually purposefully went into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit in order to face these temptations. And it says in verse two, for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I would say that's probably... An understatement. I've, if you've heard me preach for, for any amount of time, you know, um, I went to ranger school in 1986 and you get one meal a day for 58 days and you're moving all day long and you are hungry. People begin to do crazy things when they get hungry. When people get hungry, they be, they sell it, you'd sell out your best friend if you were hungry enough. Jesus has gone without food for 40 days and Luke makes it clear he was hungry so he is in a weakened state he is in a state where a lot of people would be just crazed with hunger and the temptation comes also notice that he's he's hungry very fast for 40 days and that's that connects him with a lot of stuff that happens in the old testament right Israel wandered the wilderness for 40 years Um, the flood came and it rained for 40 days When Noah went, uh, or Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, he went up for how long? 40 days, and he fasted for 40 days. And notice temptation number one. It says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So Jesus is just crazy hungry, and the devil, I think he's going for an easy win, right? Why start with the biggest thing when he could just see if something easy will do the trick, and so he says to him, basically, if you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. I'll be honest with you, if I had hadn't eaten for 48, I don't think the devil would've had to tell me to do that if I had that power. I'd have been making bread all day long, which is a good thing Jesus was in the wilderness and not me. Basically, the test brings into question God's wisdom and his willingness to provide. I mean, everything that Satan says is sort of trying to undermine Jesus' relationship to the Father. That's why he keeps saying, when he, he prefaces things by saying, if you are the son of God, right, if you really are the, 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 the most favored boy, the, the, the best child, you know, whatever you want to call it, then command the stone to become bread. God would let you do it. And basically, it it's, brings into question God's wisdom, his willingness to provide. And it also brings up the temptation to look out for yourself, right we all feel like that do you ever feel like okay god isn't providing for me right now or god isn't paying attention to me or god if does he know the things that i'm going through right now and since he doesn't i'm going to take care of myself right i'm going to be proactive and we tend to believe the heresy that god helps those who help themselves and so i'm going to go do all these things that's not in the bible and so satan throws this test out to jesus and what does jesus tell him verse 4 he says and Jesus answered him it is written man shall not live by bread alone. Now in a word what he says is what he's saying there is um, life is about more than satisfying my physical appetites. That the my physical appetites are important but they don't rule me. There's something else that's important and it's Trusting the promises of God, right? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. If you remember in Deuteronomy 8, when Jesus follows up with that, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, that God's promises ultimately are what is important. And in Deuteronomy 8, we read that God made Israel hungry so that they might rely on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In other words, we tend to look at hunger as something bad that, that, you know, needs to be satisfied. And what Jesus points us to by virtue of of referencing Deuteronomy is sometimes that hunger ought to drive us to the promises of God. Sometimes that feeling of want, that feeling of desire, that feeling of incompleteness shouldn't just drive us to take care of ourselves, but should actually drive us to seek God himself. God, the one who promised to provide for us, God, the one who promised to care for us, God, the one who promised to protect us, that our wants, needs, and desires can either drive us to him or they can drive us to just satisfy them without him. And Jesus says, I will not do that, right? That that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so how does he do on the first test? Pass. Jesus passes the first test for us. Number two, the second temptation or test has to do with trusting God's authority. Look at verse five, it says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and all their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So what's going on here? What is the devil doing? So verse 6, he takes him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and basically says to you, I will give all this authority and glory for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Without becoming political, frankly, this ties into Revelation chapter 16, or chapter 13, where the beast, I think, is the governments of this world. The government tends to be tyrannical, that that at the end of the day, there is no perfectly Christian government. There are governments that have checks and balances like ours do, but the reason they have checks and balances is because governments tend toward corruption. And the reason they tend toward corruption is because the kingdom of this world is behind governments. And so Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I can do with these whatever I will. It's been given unto me, and I would be happy to give them to you. He makes them an offer. And this passage, that part reminds me, if you've seen Wonder Woman 84 yet, that came out. Remember in Wonder Woman 84, the newest Wonder Woman, basically the plot revolves around this thing called a dream stone where you put your hands on the dream stone and whatever you wish for, you get. The problem is it comes with some tremendous price. So you, you might wish for something and then you, you get this price. Now, honestly, if I had the dream stone here, I wish that Wonder Woman 1984 was a lot better movie, but I don't know if I could afford the price. What is the price that Satan demands from Jesus right here? He says, I'll give you everything. Here's the price in verse seven. He says, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, this is an interesting passage because all the things that Satan offers to Jesus, he already has. In other words, everything that Satan offers to Jesus has already been promised to Jesus by God the Father. Now, if God the Father has already promised all these things to Jesus, why would Satan even bring them up? Why would he bother? And the answer is, is just this that basically um, he comes to Jesus and says, Worship me. And, and Jesus is in this place where he, he has nothing and he has offered everything. But more than that, he has offered everything without the cross. In other words, the devil's offering everything that God promised to Jesus, but he says, you don't have to go that stupid cross. You don't have to die. All you got to do is worship me. A lot easier, don't you think? What's Jesus going to say? Jesus says in verse 8, And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So in other words, Jesus answer in it, he isn't just rejecting um, an ultimate earthly kingdom that ultimately Jesus will rule over all the heavens and all the earth. What he is rejecting is the wisdom of Satan in favor of the wisdom of God. And we know from 1 Corinthians, we know from the New Testament that the wisdom of God is foolishness in the eyes of the world that the cross is foolish in the eyes of the world. Satan says, worship me and avoid the cross. And Jesus says, I'm going to trust the wisdom of God, my father, and embrace the cross. Which leads to the next point, the last test. Well, How did Jesus do a number two? Pass. He gets an incredible pass there. Number three. The third test or or temptation has to do with trusting in God's protection. Look at verse 9. It says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to himself, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time." So what is going on here? So he, the, the, the devil has failed at telling Jesus to start, turn a stone into bread. He has failed in offering him all of the kingdoms of the world And so what he goes for now is a test of God's private protection. Is God really care? Is he really going to protect you? Is he really going to take care of you? And he basically, the first two times, Jesus has answered with the Bible. And so the devil, I think he tries to pull fast one and give Jesus the Bible first. And what essentially he's telling Jesus to do here is basically saying, if, if you really are who you say you are, do something so you can know right? If, if you say that God cares for you, then jump off this temple and and show yourself. Then you won't have any question in your own mind whether or not God cares for you, because you'll jump off and he'll catch you and you'll say, whew, I know God loves me. Jesus rejects that. Verse 12, he says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16 there, and what they're referencing there is Exodus chapter 17, and if you remember, Exodus chapter 17 is right after the Red Sea, and Israel is in the desert, and the the wilderness of Massa and Meribah, and there's no water, and they complain. In other words, and that, that is what is considered putting God to the test, and in other words, God brought them out of Egypt. He said, I will save you from Egypt and I promise you, I will finish the job. And when they got out of Egypt and as soon as things got hard, as soon as things were a little bit difficult, they showed that they really didn't believe God was going to finish the job, that they believed that that he had brought them out to do them harm. And That was considered, he says, that's where you put me to the test out there. I don't know if he meant put his patience to the test or put what to the test, but God was upset with them. Remember, and that's where Moses had to strike the rock and the whole thing of water came out. And basically, um, when they tested God, they, they showed that they tested God by their complaining. Now, let me ask you this. Are you a God tester? I am. What do I mean by that? is that God promised that he would never fail me or forsake me, and he has given his one and only son for me. He has blessed me with incredible blessings, and yet every day I put him to the test by complaining about his goodness and his fatherly care on my behalf. Do you do that? If you are a complainer, you are putting God to the test. You're showing that you actually don't believe in his goodness. You don't believe in his good care for us. And that's what happened with Israel. And Jesus said, I'm not going to go there, right? He has said, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. That Israel didn't believe God was going to finish the job. Jesus did. And because Jesus believed God was going to finish the job, Jesus himself was able to finish the job because Jesus finished the job, he will finish the job in us. He who began a good work in us will do what? He will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. So for this final test, Jesus gets another pass. Three pitches, three hits, three home runs, Jesus wins. And it says, and the devil had ended every temptation, verse 13, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, what is the consequence of Jesus passing this test, if you will, for surviving 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan and yet not giving in and yet not failing? Well, remember the the consequence for Adam failing was that curse came upon the whole earth and especially upon his children, his progeny, and we have both the guilt of Adam's sin, but we also are overcome by the power of sin, and we also are responsible for our own sins. What's the consequence of Jesus winning in the wilderness? Well, the consequence of Jesus winning in the wilderness, because he lived the life we should have lived, he did it. And he succeeded, and because he lived the life we should have lived, he was able to die the death we should have died. And by faith in that death, we can not only be forgiven by our, of our sins, but we will be given the same record of righteousness as Jesus. You see, we tend to look at the, the story of the wilderness and think, wow, Jesus is giving us an example of how to, how to overcome sin. No, 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 no. Jesus in the wilderness overcame sin, on our behalf, that is the primary place where he lived the life that we should have lived so that he might die the death that we should, that, that we should have died. And now what does it take to, to have your sins forgiven? What is it? What do you have to do? What kind of goodness do you bring to the table? And the answer is none. Remember one of my favorite hymns is Come Ye Sinners and there's a line in there that says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him do you feel your need of Jesus? Because if you feel a need, he is there for you. He has won for you. He won in the wilderness. He won at the cross and he won ultimately in his resurrection. And All of that is yours for the taking. That's where the Jesus story Bible goes, right? In, the, in this story that we read this week, called entitled Let's Go. It goes from the temptation in the wilderness immediately to Jesus seeking out those who would follow him. And that's how I'll end today. I'm not going to end with the very end of the story, but with who Jesus chose. So this is on page 210 of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, Jesus left the desert and set about the great rescue. He was going to get God's people back, but first he needed to find some helpers and friends. He had a lot to do. He would need some people to help him. Who would make good helpers, do you think? Clever ones? Rich ones? Strong, important ones? Some people might think so, but I'm sure by now you don't need me to tell you they'd be wrong because the people God uses don't have to know a lot of things or have a lot of things. They just have to need him a lot. If you need Jesus a lot, You're the very person he came to save. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would just come now. um, And for whoever might be watching this that needs a word of comfort, that needs a word of encouragement, let them look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, and also the one who has uh, passed all of the tests you gave him who succeeded in living a perfectly righteous life that he might die a death on behalf of his people that their sins might be forgiven christ's name we pray these things amen and amen well at this point in the sermon in the service typically uh, we would either be taking an offertory or we'd be doing a musical offering now um, in in lieu of the offertory and we're not doing that obviously but i will take this opportunity to say if you're interested in giving online um, you can find that information in the description section and i just want to thank everyone for for being so faithful in the year 2020 right up to the very end i mean we've been out of church for almost a year and we made it through and we will make it into 2021 and hopefully we will see what happens. I thought I would finish today with um, a profession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism. And today I'm going to do three questions. I don't know if I've ever done three questions before, but they're all short questions and we'll end with this. So the first question is this from uh, question 16. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? Answer, God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin. But a sinful human could never pay for others. Question 17, why must the mediator also be true God? Answer, so that the mediator, by the power of his divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And then finally, question 18, then who is this mediator? True God, and at the same time, true and righteous human. Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given to us completely, to completely deliver us and make us right with God. Amen. So let me send you from this virtual place saying the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen. And don't forget, as soon as you feel comfortable, we are worshiping corporately at 10 a.m., on Sunday mornings, as of today, January 3rd. Amen and amen. Have a good week.